Forgotten Reformation, Episode 5, The Reformed Faith in Canada. Welcome to The Forgotten Reformation. I'm Dylan, and I'm from a podcast called Arguments from Reason, a philosophy and Christian apologetics podcast. And this is actually the second podcast that I have guest co-hosted on. Uh, which will actually be released first. And on this podcast, we're going to be talking about Presbyterianism in Canada. That's right. Presbyterianism in Canada. It's, um, well, as you know, uh, July 1st is Canada Day. And it's the day that, you know, what was Canada actually became Canada. So in honor of this July 1st in two days, being the celebration of Canada as a federation or confederation being 150 years old, we decided to have a special Canada 150 podcast where we look at the history of the, the whole Reformed faith in Canada. And we'll try to bring you up relatively to the, the modern day. I don't know how detailed people would like us to go in. In fact, if we could receive um, feedback from viewers on this, that would be tremendously helpful. I think for us in just figuring out, you know, hey, how far do we want to want to go? How much detail do the viewers want? We're looking at probably six or seven episodes on this, unless if people want us to do it in greater detail. So it's really up to our uh, our viewers and ourselves if the viewers don't give us any feedback. Right. So we will start with talking about the beginning of Canada's founding, at least in terms of the land of Canada being founded by Europeans, and from there get into the immigrants of the Reformed and Presbyterian faith. So just to cover it briefly, how was Canada founded? Well, I mean, first I guess we'd have to look at the New World was discovered in 1492. And then in 1497, uh, I believe it was Robert Cabot. Is that right? Is it John Cabot? John Cabot. His name, yeah, John Cabot, um, came to Canada in 1497 and discovered Newfoundland. And um, upon this rediscovery, because the Vikings had found it and colonized it, you know, a few hundred years before, um, the Europeans began getting a picture of how vast the new landmass of, of new North and South America, they would have known it then probably as the New World, um, was. Not that Newfoundland, the island, is connected, but they, they realized there was a lot of land. So... Um, that definitely happened. Um, it would not be until what I. It wouldn't really be until 1534 that Jacques Cartier would find would go to the Gaspe Peninsula and plant a cross there. And from 1534 on is when you really have um, the beginning of, of human settlement in Canada outside of the First Nations, as they're called in Canada. Of course, for me, an American, we would call them Native Americans or Indians. But um, that's kind of your initial timeline is in 15 or in 1497, John Cabot discovers Canada, 1534. 
across is planted by Jacques Cartier on the Gaspé Peninsula, which they say the Gaspé is absolutely beautiful. I've never been up there, but they say the Gaspé Peninsula is beautiful. Dylan, have you ever been to the Gaspé? I have not been there, no. Okay, okay. Um, so that's the beginning of Canada. So, so we have uh, John Cabot coming in 1497 and Jacques Cartier coming in 1534. Now, we know that John Cabot was an Italian, but he came from France, and Jacques Cartier was also French. Were both were both of these men Roman Catholic then, given their French well, heritage? Well, um, John Cabot, being an Italian and coming in 1497, it wouldn't be till 1517, of course, that Luther's thesis would go up on the, the castle church at Wittenberg. Um, so, basically, John Cabot was a, a uh, Roman Catholic. Now, if he had personal doubts or things, I can't, I can't know that. I'm not an expert on John Cabot. And Jacques Cartier was a very adamant Roman Catholic, as it appears. Um, and, and Jacques Cartier, this would actually cause um, perhaps some issues. But anyway, uh, Jacques... Do we then... Do we then know that Cartier's crew as well were Catholics? Um, I think Cartier and his crew actually, I think, it would have have been an interesting mix. Um, Certainly, I suppose the first thing we would have to realize is that the, the Huguenots very quickly wanted to, I don't want to say capitalize on, um, the New World, but the Huguenots were obviously a persecuted minority in France. And um, when we talk about the Huguenots, obviously we're referring to French Protestants. And so um, the Huguenots came to the New World first in the 1500s, actually to Brazil. And the first Reformed services held in the New World were held in South America. Um, And the Huguenots, of course, they have a very, very uh, tenuous history. My understanding is that Cartier's crew would have been majority Catholic. I know that subsequently in in the new expeditions to uh, Quebec with Champlain, Champlain would have a lot of tension between Huguenot crew members and Catholic crew members and Jesuits. So all of this is kind of going on. Okay, so in the beginning of the first expeditions to Canada, we primarily have Roman Catholics coming. If not universally so, yes. Right. So given that, when is the first arrival of Protestants in Canada? So, you're going to have Protestants. They're going to look universally almost to the the New World as kind of a bastion of hope. And um, we're going to find that really the first um, Reformed Protestants will come to France as part of an effort actually to escape persecution. Like, it's quite reasonable that they would want to get away from some of this issue. So what ends up happening this of course I mentioned the first French come to Brazil. 
Now, subsequently, I believe around the year 1604, um, uh, a, a Huguenot, uh, well, first off, there's a guy named um, M. Chauvin, or Calvin, not, of course, John Calvin, who tried to bring 500 colonists to New France. And they established a colony at Tadoussac on the on St. Lawrence River, which is about 130 miles downriver from Quebec. And Chauvin died in 1601. He was a Calvinist. Uh, he was a Huguenot. But finally, um, a guy by the name of de Mont, who was a, an advisor to the king and governor of Paris, would request permission to leave and colonize what was then Acadia. And at, at that time, France controlled basically all of Canada and laid claim to, I guess, some parts of Maine and New England. And so, in 1604, de Mons sails from Havre in France, and um, he went with, uh, the guy he took with him was a guy named Pointe Grave, or Pont Grave, who had worked with Chauvin, and um, he took, uh, Samuel Champlain went along with him as well. But um, beside from these, you know, kind of prominent figures uh, associated with de Mont, a lot of uh, nobles and merchants and peasants would come, Roman Catholics and their priests, as well as Huguenots and their pastors. And the, the journey was particularly tenuous because the, the, the Roman Catholics and the Huguenots were really having quite a controversy on the, on the vessel. Samuel Champlain, of course, writes, I have seen the minister, uh, the ministers and the priest on this ship attack each other with fist upon the difference of religion. I know not which was braver, or which gave the heavier blow. But I know that the minister some co sometimes complained to de Mont that he had been beaten, and thus they settled their points of controversy. I leave you to decide, he says, if this was decent to behold. The savages were first on one side and then on another, and the, the French took part, according to their creeds, abusing each other's religion. Now, de Mont, on the voyage, he did everything he could to, I suppose, try to preserve the unity of the group. But there was a very visible cleave between the Calvinist, the Huguenots, and, or the Reformed, the Huguenots, and the, and the Roman Catholics. And so the first settlement they had was on the, on the Bay of Fundy at the island of Saint-Croix which separates modern-day the Canadian province of New Brunswick from the state of Maine. And they built houses and, and a fort and some other things. And Dumont took up his role, basically, as, I've got all this land. Of course, he wasn't exactly sure the vastness of it. But um, he moved the capital to what is modern-day uh, Annapolis, Nova Scotia. And a lot of Acadians would settle in this region, especially a little north of Annapolis in an area called Grand Pre, where they would, I think, be removed in 1755. Um, now, unfortunately, de Mont's kind of claim to the land was revoked when um, Henry IV 
was, I guess, assassinated. And um, basically, he, he retired from the government and uh, of New France. I think he went back to France. Or, and so, um, at that point, uh, the prominent figure of Cardinal Richelieu and the Jesuits would step in, and they would ban Huguenots from coming to New France after 1627. Um, so the Huguenots really kind of lost out on that deal, and there wasn't a lot of Huguenots uh, left in North America. Um, of course, the English would fight wars over Quebec, and um, basically, uh, it would there would be Huguenots remaining in the in New France. But it wouldn't be a, a significant um, amount. The largest amount of Huguenots represented were probably merchants that went back and forth. And they were not permitted to remain in New France unless if they had a license. So, unfortunately, the Huguenots were really excluded from the French settlements in the New World. Okay. So just to broaden the historic landscape here... This is happening in the early 17th century. Champlain makes his expedition originally in 1608. And from what I've read, France didn't really send too many migrants to the New World in the 17th century, at least the first half of it, perhaps only a few thousand. So at this time, there isn't many French people in Canada in general, and a lot of them are struggling to stay there for various reasons. One is that the English are there and the tensions that are happening in Europe are pouring over into Canada. They're struggling to keep up with the fur trade and things like that. So, as well as scurvy, some of them dying of scurvy after they spend months on a ship crossing the Atlantic and coming to Canada. So, the Huguenots are coming to New France but how many of them are actually there in terms of number, roughly? It couldn't have been even probably a few hundred. I think that the, the, right? the maximum amount of, of Huguenots in New France prior to the prohibition of them being there and requiring a permit in 1627 would have been a few hundred. And, and these, a lot of them went back to France. A lot of them really struggled. And they just kind of really fall off the pages of history and the Jesuits would really subvert their efforts. In fact, one of the conditions upon a group of Huguenots coming to New France was that they had to take the Jesuits with them. And when they got there, any natives they encountered, the Jesuits had to educate. They had no opportunity to evangelize the, the natives. So you're, you're kind of seeing, in a way, uh, the, the, the difficulties of French politics as France is struggling with the Huguenots, that policy that France is enacting with the Huguenots comes into the to the New World, and at, France. At this, oh, go so ahead. at the at the same time, there are English colonies in Canada. So those presumably would have been dominated by the Church of England. Well, you don't really have, I don't think, a, a, a sizable English colonies in Canada until a bit later. So the English are there, and they're kind of a, a force against the French. 
But you don't have a lot of really substantial English settlement until the latter half of the 17th century, going into the 18th century. So there's a lot of different variables at play. And one of the things we can say is colonial North America is a place that's sparsely inhabited by groups of Europeans that are in conflict with each other, coupled with natives who are in conflict with the Europeans and themselves. And then there's various economic and political interests on both sides of the Atlantic. So the reality of it is there's a lot of complexity going on with the, um, with the, the Huguenots in Canada with the early Protestant settlements and that, that sort of thing. But I think the, the important thing to realize, uh, kind of going out from, from our discussion of, of Canada to the bigger picture of the Americas, is the colonization of the Americas happens hand in hand with the Reformation. And this presents some, quite frankly, very unique problems um, for uh, colonists, for colonization, and for, for politics. So you have to take into account the vast disruption in Europe that the Reformation caused. In these early settlements in the, in the 1500s and then going into the 1600s, these same tensions over the Reformation are felt. So I think that's a key, kind of a key point to be made. Okay, so then we have in 1627, the Huguenots are banned from New France. Yes, that's How right. How long until they make a return to New France or Canada? The Huguenots. Right, the Huguenots. I mean, the next really significant Huguenot migration you would have to Canada would be after the American Revolution when a lot of Huguenots were loyal to the British crown and they actually made their way back up to Canada in order to escape the American uh, Revolution. So you're, you're not really going to see a lot of, of uh, Huguenots, and there, there's really no Huguenots in, in any of the major French-speaking parts of, of Canada. There's just none left. Um, now, there was a lot of Huguenot descendants that came after the American Revolution, and these were Huguenots that had settled in Ireland, and afterwards America, and then to Canada, as well as some that actually settled in Germany for a time, left Germany, came to America, and then were driven up to Canada by the Revolution. So that's happening in the late 18th century. That's, that's right, that's right. Um, so this is almost 150 years after they were banned from New France. That's right. But once the English had taken control of, of what is now Canada, Protestantism would be kind of an open uh, thing that was allowed. And once you get to really heavy British colonization, of course, in 1707, Scotland, England become one country, the United Kingdom, um, you have a lot of Presbyterian settlement. Okay. Or so let's talk a bit about for that matter. Let's talk about Presbyterianism in Canada then and the first Presbyterians to come to Canada. So unfortunately the Presbyterians that come to Canada kind of have a a, a bit of I don't I don't want to say a sordid history, 
because that sounds, you know, not so uh, great. But really, what what ends up happening is um, in 1713, what is Acadia, which is Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and, and PEI, Prince Edward Island, they come, they're ceded to Queen Anne of England by the Treaty of Utrecht. And um, you're going to see that it's not until the late 1700s that really you have the first Presbyterian congregations arising in Canada. So I think the first Presbyterian congregation in what is Canada today would have actually been founded in 1749 in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Of course, Halifax was only founded uh, a few years earlier. And in Halifax, they would be called the Protestant Dissenting Congregation. Um, and actually, they were the, the, in 1749, they were organized, the Protestant Dissenting Congregation was organized the same year the city was founded. Um, and they are going to be a hub for any sort of puritanical, non-conforming folks, whether they be Presbyterians or Congregationalists. They're eventually going to come into the um, the the Presbyterian Church in Canada, but that's gonna it's gonna take some time before these things work themselves out. You mentioned the Treaty of Utrecht, and this treaty brought at least a bit of peace to the area of Canada between the French and the English, as well as among various uh, First Peoples populations. So. Did that have any effect on the immigration of Protestants and specifically Presbyterian and Reformed people to Canada? I mean, in in reality, it, it, it there were some probably coming. I mean, we don't really have clear clear uh, Protestant congregations founded until about 1750 is when things really take off. Now, what's interesting is, is that we do know in 1770, a man by the name of Romkes Bruin Komingo, or Komingo in Dutch, was made minister of the Dutch Reformed Church in Lunenburg. And as far as, he, he was the first minister to be ordained in the Dominion, and it was the first presbytery to be constituted in the Dominion. What's interesting about the Presbytery that ordains Mr. Komenho uh, is that um, it's comprised of two Congregationalists and two Presbyterians. And the first Presbyterian minister, to my knowledge, to settle in Canada um, would be Reverend James Murdoch, who settled in Nova Scotia in 1770, or 1766 and died in 1799. And there would be a missionary, James Lyon, who would visit Nova Scotia, um, but I believe he returned to, to Scotland. Okay. The Presbyterians that were coming to Canada in the 18th century, did they differ in any way from the Presbyterians that were migrating to America? Um, that's a good question. In Canada, we we do see a lot more of the secession heritage, particularly in the, uh, at least the secession heritage is more prominent 
in the in the merit what is the now the modern maritime provinces. So the secession churches left after the Marrow controversy from the Church of Scotland. They were first organized in 1733 was the first associate presbytery. And um, yeah, basically they are going to play a prominent role. Of course, the Church of Scotland is going to play a very prominent role. The Canadian churches are more attached to the Church of Scotland than their American counterparts. The American churches, in some ways, can be viewed, the American Presbyterians, what would now be the PCUSA, OPC, and PCA, can now be viewed as a very, or could be viewed as a very interesting um, conglomeration of some different Presbyterian ideas, mainly stemming from the, the Church of Scotland and the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Um, but, of course, uh, America's about 70 years behind, or ahead of Canada, I suppose, in organizing Presbyterianism. Of course, in 1717, the first Synod of Philadelphia was, was conducted with 13 ministers and six ruling elders present at that Synod. So you mentioned that the American Presbyterians would later become the PCUSA, the PC, and OPC. Were the Canadian Presbyterians that were coming to Canada during the 18th century eventually going to form the Presbyterian Church in Canada? Well, they they did eventually form the Presbyterian Church in Canada, and this wouldn't happen until the late 1800s. But when they initially came to Canada, they stayed in the groups, typically, if they could, that they left Scotland in. So, for example, the uh, Reformed Presbyterians, or the Covenanters, they would organize their own congregations. The Associates, which would have been burghers and anti-burghers, would organize their own congregations, and the, and the Church of Scotland would organize their own congregations. And in Canada, in the 1840s, as the disruption happens in the Free Church, you're also going to have a strong Free Church movement in Canada that will result in, you know, basically a Canadian Free Church. So, everything is very interesting in Canada, and it's not always a clear line up. Um, so, all of these groups would have had their own presbyteries and then perhaps even their own synods distinct from each other. That's right, and they would eventually organize uh, presbyteries. Now, of course, in, in 1770, the first presbytery in, in Canada was constituted in Halifax, if I understand the way it works out. Um, but in, in 1786 which would be 16 years after that first presbytery, you're going to have it, the presbytery of Truro, Nova Scotia, which was a burger associate presbytery organized. Um, and, and from there, things are really going to move at a very, very rapid pace. So for those unfamiliar, can you just give a brief distinction between the Covenanters and the burger and associate Presbyterian and how they would have differed? So the the burghers and the anti-burghers are the associates and they broke off dealing with an oath. Um, so let me let me backtrack a little bit. In the 1700s, Thomas Boston, a very prominent Presbyterian figure, he would be the key in, in a controversy called the Marrow Controversy. And subsequently, after the Marrow Controversy, um, the, a group of men would break away, and it was, I believe, in 1730 
1733 that the Associate Presbytery, or the Secession Church, as it would later be called, was organized. And then, in 1747, the Associate Synod would would break into burger and anti-burger. And this had to do with an oath. So I think what, what I would like to do is when we discuss the burgers and anti-burgers in Canada, which we hope to do, we'll go into this in, in detail. Now, the Covenanters, they, they were outside of the Church of Scotland during what was called the Killing Times. And then at the Revolution Settlement, which happened in, in 1688 when um, William of Orange comes to the throne in, in Britain, they will stay out as well, and they will not actually be able to constitute a presbytery until 1743, and their congregations will be found in the Maritimes, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, as well as in parts of Upper Canada, um, and so we can we can discuss them as as well, um, and then the Church of Scotland is going to be a major player. Also, so you're going to have uh, different men coming from all these churches and they're going to be organizing congregations in Canada on the basis of basically the divisions that have been around in Scotland. Okay, so there were these distinctions between various Presbyterian groups and that was a result of these groups in some sense already existing prior to their immigration to Canada. And they retained this when they came to Canada. And is there any reason why they didn't immediately seek to be unified upon coming to Canada? Well, I suppose um, it, it would seem logical to us, but I suppose we have to think of of, of uh, their situation. Those who had left the Church of Scotland, um, the Covenanters or the Reformed Presbyterians as well as the Associates, they left the Church of Scotland over set issues they felt were wrong. And in Canada, because it was a British colony, the Presbyterians were still, I guess you could say, jurisdictionally under the Church of Scotland, unless if their own splinter group or secession group or whatever you want to call them came with them. So, therefore, um, because it was a British colony and because the same doctrinal disagreements that happened in Scotland carried over, to the new world. All right. So, um, they, they came to Canada really with the divisions that were already going on in, uh, in, in Scotland and in, in Britain in general. So that I think caused, uh, some, some issues, but they, they, because it was, well, the reason why they stayed in their own distinct groups is because Canada was a British colony. And for that reason, whatever issues had arisen typically in Scotland, they felt were, were still in play in Canada. So they would have maintained their own groups um, universally because they felt like, you know, if the, the Church of Scotland is in Canada, the Associates are in Canada, and the, the Reformed Presbyterians are in Canada, and they felt that this was the way they had ought to, uh, ought to really conduct themselves. It was, you know, um, it was part of Britain because it was a colony, it was an extension. So whatever disagreements they had with the Church of Scotland that caused them to leave 
were still in effect because the Church of Scotland still had jurisdiction over Presbyterians there. So yeah, they were going to stay in their own groups. Well, you know, the first presbytery is obviously organized in the Maritimes. The the first ministers arrive in the Maritimes, but, you know, the first presbytery in Canada and the first ordination of a Reformed minister happens in 1770. But basically, by 1787, you're going to have um, men like Reverend John Berthoum who are going to make it out to Montreal. And eventually, John Berthoum is going to go to Glengarry in Ontario, and, and he's going to die in 1815, but all of this stuff is going to be going on. So, at the point in the 1770s, really, when the Presbyterians become established, of course, the Protestant dissenting congregation established in Halifax is founded in 1749. From that point on, things are going to move at a very rapid pace for Canadian Presbyterianism. I think that the okay, and, and so when I think the that the people who landed in Nova Scotia and Brunswick, Canada, some of them went west, but I think primarily what you see is people going to Nova Scotia and Brunswick and then other groups that are gonna go to, to you know, upper and lower Canada um and settle there. You're not gonna have always in the American context. I mean, some people will be removed to other parts of Canada, but you're not gonna have kind of this gradual expansion as America has it per se, of people who already lived in America moving to another part. A lot of these immigrants are going to come from a place in Scotland straight to Upper Canada, particularly. Okay, and this would be in the early 19th century? This would be in the late 18th, early 19th century, yes. So that's going to take Upper Canada, particularly, is going to be in the 1700s, and uh, you're going to see a large amount of Presbyterians coming into Upper Canada. And, and like Ontario, for example, is going to have a very vibrant um, Presbyterian uh, heritage. And in fact, one of the interesting pieces of Canadian Presbyterian history is that the Reformed Church in America, which is Dutch Reformed, is actually going to go preach to a lot of these immigrants, as well as some groups of German immigrants in Upper Canada. Because they're, they're going to go faster than their ministers actually can travel with them. Or their ministers don't come, they don't take ministers along, or whatever reason. So, you're going to have, in 1798, Reverend Robert McDowell from the Dutch Reformed Church arrives in Upper Canada. And he's going to start congregations throughout Upper Canada. In 1801, uh, Reverend Daniel Eastman, uh, Eastman will commence his uh, work in the Niagara district of, of Upper Canada. So, a lot of things are going on uh, throughout Canadian Presbyterianism. Then in the mid-18th century, the Presbyterians become more established, and then by the beginning of the 19th century, they're already in Upper and Lower Canada, and they're starting to get more established. In terms of the politics of Canada at this time, was there any tensions between the Catholics and the Protestants, specifically in the Montreal and Quebec regions? Yes, there's going to be a lot of um, political kind of back and forth. And, and one of the things that's going to run throughout Canadian Presbyterian history is there's going to be a desire to evangelize the Quebecois. And we'll see this more as, as we move through this series into the 19th century. But yeah, um, there's always going to be a religious tension between Protestant 
Maritimes and Protestant Upper Canada and then Lower Canada, which is, of course, today Quebec. There's going to be very much that tension. And Montreal is kind of a split town. And it's going to have Protestants, it's going to have Roman Catholics. At this time, where were the Dutch Reformed churches at? So the Dutch Reformed churches that came to Canada came to primarily preach to Scottish immigrants as well as some German immigrants. And they are going to primarily end up laboring around um, Brockville as well as around, um, I guess, you uh, near um, what would be today the Brockville area. So kind of along the shores of, of Lake Ontario, that, that, type of, uh, that type of area. So they're going to be, I'm hoping we'll do a special on the Dutch Reformed in Canada and we can really dive into this, but they are going to come primarily, Robert McDowell is going to come primarily out of the need of the Scottish immigrants for a Reformed uh, ministry. And he's going to be sent by the RCA, Reformed Church in America, Synod of Albany up to Upper Canada to preach the gospel. And he's going to go all over the place, from the Niagara District all the way up to basically Montreal. Did the Dutch Reformed and the Presbyterians have any interaction with each other? Well, um, yes and no. I think the Dutch Reformed, the RCA that sent missionaries up to Upper Canada, knew they were answering the need of the Scottish who were there. That was something they were aware of, um, interaction would come in later into place. So the interaction that's going to happen will come in later. Of course, there is a Dutch Reformed congregation in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, and that's where um, Mr. Komenho is going to be the minister. So there, there's Dutch Reformed, there's Presbyterians, there were Huguenots, they've pretty much gone by the way. And that's kind of your initial splice, if you will, of, of uh, the Reformed faith in Canada. Okay. Um, we could cover a bit of how it progressed uh, beyond that through the 19th century, and in future episodes, there will be more discussion on the details of all of this. So, beyond the early 1800s, what happened then? Beyond the early 1800s, um, you're going to have so much interesting stuff that's going to go on. In the 1830s particularly, you're going to have a lot of Highland immigrants that are going to come. And then in the 1840s, this is going to breed kind of the free church mentality. Um, you're going to continue seeing the propagation of the various secession churches, particularly in Nova Scotia, I think is kind of where the secession churches called home. And in the 1830s, too, you're going to have the Reformed Presbyterians really coming hard onto the scene and sending ministers over. And there's going to be Reformed Presbyterians settling in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, as well as in modern-day Ontario. So all that is is going to be taking off um, throughout kind of this, this period of the 1800s. The 19th century is, is really what forms it's the 19th century, I would argue, probably presents you with the most vibrant, rigid, and, um, you know, sound Canadian Presbyterianism. In the latter half of the 19th century, the Canadian Presbyterians would fall largely at, uh, at prey to things like the, um, the ecumenical movement and so on, and that would pave the way for in the 18, late 1800s to have the Presbyterian Church in Canada or PCC. Okay. Given 
the area where I live, which is Winnipeg, we had uh, the Apostle John Black of Red River. And this was in the mid-19th century, and he was a Reformed Presbyterian minister. Was he the first Presbyterian minister in the prairies? Um, so, yeah, I th- he's the first minister that I suppose you could say is really worth noting in the prairies. I think that it would have been visited by other ministers, but John Black, the Apostle of Red River, is he's going to be Scottish. He's going to come to New York. His parents are going to attach themselves to the Associate Church. When it come to when he when he feels his call to the ministry and it comes time for him to enroll in theological education, he's going to be unable to agree with the PCUSA in the states as well as the Associate Church, and he's going to make his journey to Toronto, enroll at Knox College, and then he's going to be initially used as a missionary in Montreal, and then they're going to send him out to the prairies. And he's going to preach in the prairies, and he's going to become a tremendously popular okay. character out there. So, with that uh, regarding John Black, and we can get more into that in future episodes, as well as later Presbyterian history. I know in the uh, early 20th century, there was an ecumenical movement among Presbyterians, Methodists, and a few other denominations, which led to the United Church in Canada. So, that has another part of history there to discuss. But I think that's it. Is there anything more else you want to say for this brief overview, Zach? No, I think, you know, we've overviewed the Reformed faith in Canada, and, you know, hopefully we can get this episode out in time for uh, Saturday. Yeah, that would be good. So with that, this has been another episode of the Forgotten Reformation. I'm Dylan. And I am Zach, and we thank you very much for tuning in and listening. Yeah, thank you. God bless.